0: Such a wonderful time to sing together, and we have helpers up here and on piano. Thank you, David. I was a little sad, of course, very sad when Lisa left, but God has provided. After having Lisa for seven years, I wasn't sure how things would go for a while, and we've been very blessed, haven't we? And also, we didn't have room in the bulletin for this, but you may have noticed we are running out of seats in our church. And so September 10th, we are going to meet in the evening. We invite you to come then. And the elders are going to talk about that with you. We're going to have a little film of our own that you may have heard about that's about 12 minutes long. And then we're going to present our plan and what we need to get started on now to look to the future. God is saving people. God is bringing people. But we also need to plan for the future there. So September 10th, Sunday evening, in a few weeks. Well, let's open God's Word. The most important part of our whole service is God's Word being proclaimed. Opened up. Explained. And we are in this wonderful book of Romans. And we've been making our way through Romans for some time. But we stopped here on 8, 29, and 30. And have gotten the microscope out and looked at each of these words. Each of these words, each of these doctrinal terms here in Romans 8, 29, and 30. They're so important that we need to open each one up. Have a close examination of that. And I want to just read the passage to you so you can see them in context. They follow after Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 sets the, the tone, the theme, and then Paul backs it up with 29 and 30. The Apostle Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. You know, we just have been looking at these important doctrines The links of the golden chain, or what I'm calling here, the unbreakable chain of redemption. And these last few weeks, we've looked at all of them except this very last one, glorified. And we just sang, didn't we, about this doctrine in that song, the sands of time are sinking. We've started singing that a few months ago. And I looked up why that song was written, what it was written about. The hymn was written based on a collection of letters from Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford was a Puritan or Puritan-like Scottish pastor in the 1600s. And he wrote some wonderful letters. You should get a copy in our bookstore if you don't have his letters. But in the 1800s, a pastor's wife looked at those letters and wrote this hymn. And the hymn is about the future glory in Emmanuel's land. Not just the glory of Christ, which is the most wonderful glory, but we will also be glorified with him. When we're in his land, when we're with him in eternity. And that's our doctrine today, glorification, glorification. It's the last of the five links here in the chain that we've been looking at. The first one was foreknown. The all-powerful God has foreknown his people, his elect. God has looked at who he would save and chose them before the creation of the world. He didn't look forward, no, he decreed all that he would create he decreed of those people whom he would set his love on. His covenantal love. God did not look forward in time and try to learn what someone would do. He's never learned anything. You've probably gotten tired of me saying that the last five weeks. God has never learned anything. He knows all things. He decrees all things. He chose those whom he would save. Foreknown is just another way of saying elected in love or loved. Then... The second link, he predestined. He predestined. He literally marked them out from before the foundation of the world to come to saving knowledge of his son. We often combine these two together, foreknown and predestined, and we talk about election or predestination. But here Paul has separated them and he wants us to know God has chosen to have a close, intimate relationship with his people. That's foreknowledge. And then he's marked them out. He's made sure That that will come to pass. That they will be saved in time. Then the third link was calling. That in the life of the believer. The one who is predestined. That that person would be called effectually by God himself. Divinely called. In other words, God would change the heart of the unbeliever. Of the rebel against him. In their lifetime, they would come to have saving faith. Because they've been foreknown and predestined. But God sends the call and they will respond. They believe in Christ. They repent of all sin. And then last week we looked at justification. The same group all the way down here. The same ones that God foreknew he predestined. The same ones he predestined he calls. And the same one he calls he justified. Justified means declared them righteous in Christ. That they're righteous in Christ. That their sins are forgiven. This happens when you have faith, when you repent, you are justified. You receive the righteousness of Christ because you're united with him. And today we'll look at the last link, as I said, glorification. Now glorification is future. It's future, but notice how Paul writes of it. He also not will glorify. What does he say? Glorified. It's a done deal. This is going to happen. It's obvious that the same people he started with back in verse 29 with four new will make it all the way to the end. And that is the main point of this passage. That we can have assurance. And we'll come back to that throughout today's message. But I want to zoom in on glorification. Let's talk about what it is. First of all, I want you to see the path of glorification. And obviously you're not going to see all this in this passage. We've got to look broadly. We've got to look at Romans, what he's already said up until this point, and even bring in a few other verses. So in that sense, it's a theological sermon today. We're going to open up one theology topic and look at it so we can make sense of the whole passage here. First of all, the path of glorification. What is glorification? Well, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew, in their wonderful textbook, Biblical Doctrine, say that glorification is the final step in salvation. It involves the completion of sanctification And the removal of all spiritual defects. That's a wonderful thought right there. No more spiritual defects. Glorification comes about when Christ returns and he raises all believers. And he gives them a resurrected body. It's important to keep that in mind as we talk about this. You need to know what it is. It is a glorified body that Paul has in mind here. Dwelling eternally with Christ. Now what is the path? What is the path? To get to glorification. I mean, obviously we should want that, right? You should want a perfectly glorified body. You should want a body without any sin defects. Well, it's the basic order that he gives right here. He's told us here in verses 29 and 30. This is the order of salvation or the ordo salutis. At least in a shortened form here that Paul gives. Theologians call this the ordo salutis. It is the five links that I just went through. And there are others that theologians often add in, like union with Christ, which happens right before justification. And the big one, which happens between justification and glorification, is sanctification. Sanctification. Paul has taught a lot on sanctification in his other letters. He will teach us quite a bit on that in Romans 12-16. through But here, he has in mind, and the reason I think he left it out, scholars debate this, but I think he left it out here, because what's he focused on in eight twenty-eight through 30? What God has done. What God has done. Right? It says that God will work all things together for good. And then he backs it up by talking about a person's salvation. And he is focused on what God does. Do you play any part in God's foreknowing? Do you play any part in God's predestination? Do you play any part in God calling? Do you go about and help God with the justification process? Do you help God to glorify you someday when Christ comes back? No, the focus here is on God and what he's doing. And anyone who says we do those things or we help God with those things is not teaching or speaking according to the Bible. Now, there are things that we do along the process, of course, sanctification being one of them once you're saved. You were called to greater holiness. But that's not what Paul has in mind with this chain here. It's to give us assurance. But I do want to bring up sanctification. It's important enough to bring up at this point. Because sometimes people think, I've been saved. I've been justified. I've checked the box. I've got the golden ticket. Now I can rest easy. I can go back to my sinful life. I can do as I like. I will be in heaven someday. I can be a Christian couch potato and just sit back, take it easy, let everyone else do ministry, let everyone else grow in their faith, because I am going to heaven. Now, Paul doesn't mean that by leaving out sanctification. As I've said, he had a purpose in listing the five that he did. But sanctification is extremely important to remember. Philippians 2.12-13 through 13 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work it in. He doesn't say work for it. He says, now that you have it, work it out. Use it. Work it out with fear and trembling. You ought to have fear now as a Christian and trembling over your own sin, over God's glory, his awesome power that you understand. And he says right after that, for it is God who is at work in you. Even your sanctification is driven by God. Yes, we are to pursue holiness. The ultimate goal is to be more Christ-like. But God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is giving us the power. God is working through us. We are to obey. We are to grow in Christ-likeness. And eventually we will have that perfect glorification that awaits. But God is in Else now. He's working in us right now to make us more holy, to make us more like Christ. Let's not believe those lies that are preached out there. Let go and let God. Just sit back and let go and let God. That's, that's very akin to prosperity almost as Frank taught on this morning's class. Or some say just look back to the cross. When you sin, don't try to grow and put that sin off and put Christ on. Just think of the cross, which definitely is important. It's a part of the Christian life, but we're also called to pursue holiness. We're also called to put off and put on. If we just say, let's sit back and let God do the sanctification. I'm not going to pursue it. That's really antinomianism. Antinomianism means no law. That the Christian just doesn't care about God's law, God's commands. You know, that Sermon on the Mount stuff, let's just throw it aside. And live the way we want. Paul has very strong warnings about that. He says, as the other writers of scripture do, that person is not saved. Anybody who constantly and continuously disregards God's word and doesn't want to live for Christ is not a true Christian. That is indeed what Paul says when he says, examine yourselves. So sanctification is us working out the power of what God has done in us to live a holy life, completely committed to God, separated from all sin in the world, and bearing the fruit of obedience in this life. We know that process will never be perfect, but it should be getting better. Not like the stock market that's sometimes going down for a very long period of time, and you might not ever see it come up in your lifetime as some have in the past, but constant progress up. The best retirement fund is investing in your growth and in your local church, becoming more and more holy. Spending time, spending effort with fellow believers, with trusted pastors, in the word yourself, and through prayer, becoming more sanctified. God's the author of our salvation. We're not the author, but we're called to pursue holiness during our time here. We're called to grow. We're not to be infants, the Bible says. We're not to be babies, sitting back, wanting to be fed like a baby is fed. We're to grow, and of course we do want to be fed, but adults eat food as well, don't they? They eat meat. And so the Bible says we're not to sit back and be infants in the faith. As we grow, we are to grow up in the faith. Now, that's why I think Paul is saving sanctification for later in his letter because he wants to devote more attention to it. Right now, he's focused on what God is doing. That's the purpose. So let's dive into that now that we've looked at the path. I just wanted to point out to you that the path is through sanctification. Now let's look at the purpose of glorification. The purpose of glorification. God has purposed that the final step in the process of your salvation, and remember, salvation can be used sometimes to mean right when you were saved, but it can also be the zoomed outlook where God says, you have been saved, you are being saved, meaning you're growing in holiness, and you will be saved, saved from the wrath to come. And that is what glorification is about. You're saved from the wrath to come. So the purpose of glorification is to complete the work that God started. To complete the work. This is not your best life now. It's not your best life that you'll ever have. Glorification is, if you're a believer. Glorification is the best that you will ever, ever have. Paul says you can't even imagine what God has in store for you. Don't ever think this is your best life now. Now this word glorify, there's a couple of ways the Bible speaks of it. Often we see it meaning to glorify God. We do glorify God when we worship, when we praise him. When we live a life devoted to him, we we give him the honor due him, we acknowledge his splendid greatness. But here Paul is speaking of the believer being glorified. The word can sometimes be used to speak of our future glorification. This Greek word, doxadzo, just simply means to cause to have splendid greatness. To be clothed in splendor, and it is often translated glorify. It's used in the sense of, of humans to speak literally of clothing a person in the splendor that they will have as they spend forever with God. You might recall in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of being glorified. Look with me at the Gospel of John. If you would turn back to the Gospel of John and look at twelve sixteen, Chapter 12 and verse 16. Jesus makes this promise. And he says, These things... His disciples did not understand. There's a lot they didn't understand. And they did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified. Jesus always had glory. It was veiled as he walked among us. Philippians 2 talks about that. He did not walk around with a shining glory coming out of him. There were times when they saw it, right? At the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw his glory but only a glimpse of it and then as he walked among the pharisees they had no outward sign of his glory they simply had his teaching and his miracles that is enough that is enough but it says here when jesus was glorified then they remembered that these things were written about him and that he had done these things to him 12:23 look at john 12:23 the hour has come jesus says for the son of man To be glorified. He's going to get a glorified human body. As the son of God, he always had that glory. But now his human body would be fully glorified. Not able to ever die. Not able to be harmed. Fully glorified. That's the final step, Paul says, in our sanctification. To be conformed to the image of Christ. What does that mean? To be perfect. Not to be God, not to be little gods, that's false teaching, but to be complete in Him. To be perfect in Him. Glorification is a raising to eternal life. Go back in the Gospel of John, just just full of the glory of God here in Christ and even the future resurrection here, the Gospel of John is. John 6, 39. Now this is the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of God the Father. We better pay attention to what Christ is saying here. What is God the Father's will? Why did he send the Son? That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the purpose of glorification. That everyone that is elect, that everyone who comes to Christ, that everyone who is justified will be glorified. Let's look at this in some more detail, though. What does this mean that God has a purpose for us to be glorified? Why is that the case? Well, first of all, the purpose is it will be a real physical body, not just our spiritual existence. You're not just going to sit on a cloud and play a harp and hit golf balls through the cloud and see what's going to happen in heaven or some boring thing where we just sit around contemplating our navel. That is not heaven in the Bible. That's mankind's idea of heaven, these little cartoons you see, in newspaper cartoons and so on. And that's kind of the image in America that heaven's just this wonderful place where I'm going to play golf with my grandpa through the clouds Well, look, it says that it's a real place with a real physical body. Luke 24, 39. Here's Jesus. He says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. He's got a real physical body. He's not a wandering spirit. Don't think of the eternal state, the eternal heaven, as being a place of just a spiritual existence. There is a time, after we die as believers, that we'll go to be with Christ. But the ultimate goal is not that. The ultimate goal is a resurrected body. Soul or spirit united to the body. That's the ultimate goal. That's the purpose. That we would have a real physical body to glorify God forever and ever. Because there's going to be a real new heavens and new earth. A place where you can walk. A ground. Mountains. Streams. Trees. Buildings. Houses. Work. Work that will be easy, by the way. It's not going to be a boring place. The eternal state's not just going to be You know, do a few things and now we're bored for eternity. We are going to be serving the Lord with our whole physical body. Another purpose of glorification is that you will be marked by glory, not dishonor like our current bodies are. Even though we're saved, even as Christians, our bodies are still tainted by sin. You still sin you still have the effects of sin on your body as well. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 43, that this glorified body, it is going to be raised in glory. Now our bodies, he says, are sown in dishonor, but it, this future glorification, it is raised in glory. It is sown now in weakness. It is raised in the future in power. So there's a glory to it. That's really where the word glorification comes from. The body we have right now was created by God and it was good in our first parents, Adam and Eve. But when they sinned, it became a vessel that was used for dishonorable use when we sin. We were dishonored by the curse and we now live that out in our lives. We use our bodies as an instrument of our sinful acts. Paul's covered this in Romans chapter 6. That we look forward to the hope of glory. So that we'll have this body marked by glory. And no more sin. I'll always remember a couple of times I've heard John MacArthur say this. Where he says the thing I look forward to most in heaven. Is being with Christ and having no more sin. No more sin. Because as a Christian you hate sin. You hate it. You hate it when you sin. We present our bodies As instruments of unrighteousness. Go back to Romans 6.13. Paul's covered this already. So I want to just review it quickly with you. Romans 6.13. He says, Do not go on presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. The reason he's commanding Christians to do that is because sometimes they do. Sometimes they wander back. They, They look back across the fence and they say, You know, that really felt good. I'm going to wander back over there for a little bit. Now, God grabs us and he throws us back on the right side. But there are times when we wander off. And he says, don't do that. He's encouraging us to not stray, to not backslide. And don't go on doing that, presenting your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. But because in glorification it will be marked with glory, we won't have to even... Strive to do that. It'll be our natural, everyday tendency and reality. It will be actual. It will be everything for the glory of God. Every breath, every thought, every moment serving Him. This means that all believers in Christ, in our glorified state, will be in perfect holiness, free from every sin. This was the reason... One of the reasons mentioned that Christ gave himself for his people. Go to Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, 27. And this is an encouragement to husbands. But right in this encouragement to husbands, we see the perfect model of what we should be like as husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now he's going to show us what love looks like. The perfect exhibit A example of love. Just as Christ also loved the church. And he gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, their sanctification, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. The ultimate goal is to present the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ is going to spend eternity with his people on the new heavens, new earth. And we're going to have new bodies that are glorified with no sin. Because he cannot, God cannot dwell forever and ever with sinners. He is going to send sinners to hell and dwell with those who are his. Those who are in the true church are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. And they will never enter eternity without this glorification. And God is the one doing it. God is the one doing it. Cleanse from every defilement of body and spirit, the Bible says. Nothing unclean. It says, well, enter the heavenly Jerusalem. How can we get in as our feet are still dirty? Remember when Peter refuses to have his feet washed? And then he gets sarcastic and he says, well, okay, Christ, just give me a whole bath. If you're going to wash my feet, give me a whole bath. And Jesus says, you don't need a bath. You've already been cleansed. But you need your feet washed. Meaning, even as those who are redeemed still need to have this constant cleansing. And 1 John, he talks about that as well. God is faithful. God will follow through with his promises to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us. Wait a second, John, you're writing to Christians. Yeah, because every day we walk and we get dirty because we sin. And we need continual cleansing. Yes, there's a once for all cleansing and justification that we've already looked at. But God continues to forgive. Based on the blood of Christ, he's already forgiven you of future sins. And the Bible says when you come to him and confess your sins, he will forgive you. He is faithful. He is faithful to keep his promise. But we will eventually be completely glorified. Another purpose, this body, this glorification will be an imperishable body. That goes without saying, really, if you follow what I've said so far, but it's imperishable. It will not perish. First Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. There will be some who are still alive when Christ comes back, is what he's saying. But everyone will be changed. Even those who are alive when Christ comes back to get his church will get this change. It will happen quickly, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. And he says, we, speaking of those alive at the time Christ comes back, will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. You have to have an imperishable body. And God is going to give us that. This is what glorification entails. When we are with Christ in heaven... The effects of sin upon us will be no more. We will rest from our labors. We will rest from our labors and the sense of this ongoing struggle against the sinful curse upon the world. See, it's one thing so that you don't sin anymore. That's what we've already looked at with the glory. But what about other people sinning and the effects of sin on the world? When we go out and we burn up in 110 degree heat, Right, you have to think that must be part of the curse. Or when we get sick, that's not necessarily because you sinned, is it? That's the effects of sin upon the world. Because sin came into the world, there are bad things that happen to God's people. And it's all part of God's plan. That's the all things that we looked at in Romans eight twenty-eight. That will be gone. in the glorification that is to come. We have an imperishable body. Also, God's purpose in this is a glorified body that's raised in power in power not sown in weakness like the natural body 1 Corinthians 15:43 the current body is sown in weakness the new glorified body will be raised in power power he says we will all be changed what this change he's talking about is yes the imperishable body but also empowered by God to do everything he commands and to live for his glory ever get up and just think, you know, I am going to read my Bible today. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible and I don't have anything else to do and I'm going to pray for hours. I'm going to read my Bible for hours. And then you get into it and what happens? Fall asleep, get distracted, think about all the things you got to do every day. Or you come to church and you think, you know, today I'm going to serve my church. I'm going to sign up last week for all of these things that were out here on the windows. Then the second month into that, you're just thinking, I can't keep up with all this. You want to serve God. You want to serve God. But you have to rest. You have to eat. You have to do the things to let your body rest. You don't always have the energy. But someday, we'll have boundless energy. We'll have boundless energy. We will not grow weary. We will serve Christ, because we have the power of the glorified body. Okay, the last main point that I want to show you. We've looked at the path of glorification, the the purpose, and then here, the promise. The promise of glorification, number three. God has promised to accomplish this. Therefore, out of those that God has elected from all humanity, He has elected, He has called, He has justified, not one of them will be lost. Because we're at the end of the, the chain, aren't we? We're at the end of the five links. Did you see anyone slipping out when Paul was going through those doctrines there? Truths, things that actually happen because God is the one doing them. No one will be lost. He says, as I mentioned to you, he also glorified. This is the Greek aorist tense. It's in the past. This is a settled fact. He's so certain, Paul is, that those who are foreknown by God will eventually be glorified that he writes as if it has already taken place. There's no one lost along the way. If you are truly saved, then go live for God's glory right now and stop worrying that you'll fall out of his hand. That he somehow will lose you. That you'll lose your salvation. Don't believe these people who tell you you can lose your salvation. If you really have it, you can't lose it. You weren't the one that gave it to you, and you're not the one who can take it away from you. Only God can do that. And he won't do that, Paul says. He'll finish out Romans chapter 8, emphasizing that over and over. No one is lost along the way. It's a glory that is guaranteed by God himself. This is what we call eternal security in theology. Eternal security. That the believer is eternally secured. By God. You're secured by God. It's the teaching that the salvation of every believer is secure for all eternity. From the moment of new birth. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. Perfect it. He will complete it. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now sometimes people twist this doctrine. So you got to be discerning. Sometimes folks will say... Oh, you're living a sinful life. You're doing whatever you want. Don't worry about it. You were baptized when you were five. Once saved, always saved. Now, that is true. If you're truly saved, then always saved. The problem is, people can twist it and say that you shouldn't be at all concerned about the way you live, your holiness, your sanctification, your growth in Christ-likeness, because at some point you said you were saved. No, the Bible teaches... Those who are truly saved, genuine Christians, those who've trusted in Christ, turn from their sin. They're now pursuing him. Their desires have changed. They desire Christ. They don't desire that sin. Their desires have changed. Those, he says, will also be glorified. Truly, in that sense, once saved, always saved. The question is, who's saved? Not the person who produces bad fruit constantly regularly every day in their life if that's you here today you need to turn to Christ fully not tell yourself oh I did this thing back in the past what's your day like today this week this month what's your life like now don't look back to some point in the past that can be helpful Paul often says remember your baptism he talks about that in Romans 6 but that's an encouragement to continue on living in holiness Don't think that something you did was somehow a guarantee that you're saved. No, you were made a believer. God granted that to you. God granted you repentance. We looked at all of those verses a few weeks ago. You exercise what God granted to you. And now, today, you're continuing in that. Do you just have faith at the beginning of your walk? And then you lose it? No, you have it every day, right? Did you get up today having faith in Christ? Did you get up today battling your sin? Did you get up today desiring to be closer to the Lord? And you might say, well, not when I first woke up. No, in general, in general, what is your life like now? What is your life like now? If it is one that is following Christ, you love the Lord, you fight your sin, then here's what the Bible says. To him, that's God, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Jude 24. God will make you stand, not yourself. Not yourself. God will make you stand if you're his. Those who are genuine believers will endure in the faith because they are kept secure by God. Because of God's for love. Because of God's election, because of God's predestination, because of God's calling, because of God's justification of you. Here's how the Westminster Confession of Faith, that old Puritan confession says it. He says the perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. And then it goes on there to talk, of how the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit is part of that. God has chosen. God the Father has chosen his elect. The Son has come to redeem them. The Holy Spirit regenerates and dwells, seals them. And people teach that you can lose your salvation. How can that be reversed? How can the Spirit unseal you, God unelects you, the Son unredeem you? John six thirty nine. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. This is an important doctrine to remember. Not so you can be lazy as a Christian. This should encourage you. This should encourage you. And you don't live in fear. Go to John 10. Back in the Gospel of John here. John 10, 27. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. And I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, ever. I like how the LSB puts it. Literally translated, they will never perish, ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's saying, how can this ever be? Paul's saying in Romans 8, how can this ever be that a person would be unjustified? That a person would be uncalled, unelected? See, so many people fight over these doctrines and argue about it. These are doctrines that give us comfort. This is the heart of the gospel. That God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die for sinners. While we were yet in our sin, Christ died for us. Christ is also making intercession for us right now. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, He is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. He is making intercession for us right now. Do you think that Jesus would stop making intercession for you and just say, you know, I'm tired of doing that. I'm throwing that person out of my eternal glorified church. Ephesians 14, the Spirit seals us. The Spirit of promise, Paul says, who gives us a pledge of our inheritance. He gives us a small down payment by indwelling us now, but we have this future glory forever with Christ. Well, you might ask at this point, what about people who leave the faith? What about people who were Christians and then turned away? If this isn't possible, then why do people talk like that? Well, those who once professed faith and then later deny the lordship of Christ, they demonstrate by going out that they never were actually saved. That's not just me talking. John says that. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. You see what he's saying there? They showed they weren't of us because they left the faith. They followed into false teaching, heretical doctrine. They denied the lordship of Christ. For if they had been of us, John says, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So knowing all these things, we should be comforted if we're believers. Yes, people talk about leaving the faith, but really they're leaving a cultural thing. They're leaving an upbringing. They're leaving their parents' faith. They're leaving the church they once went to but they can't undo true salvation. We must now respond to the doctrine of glorification as it's taught in scripture. What is this meant to do? It's meant to comfort us and it's meant to compel us to live a life of holiness. We know that the eternal goal is secure. What do we do in the meantime? We live for Christ. And this should encourage us. We're not going to fall out of God's hand. We're not going to get knocked off the track. We're to get up and run the race and not worry about future judgment. We have a healthy fear of God. We have a fear of God as a Christian, but we are not concerned about condemnation. That's how he started chapter 8, isn't it? Go back to Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an encouragement. The one who's been justified, the one who believes in Christ. Now he finishes out the chapter in 834 like this. Who is the one who condemns? Not God, not Christ, not the Spirit. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. That should encourage us to put off sin and live as slaves of righteousness. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it as he was preaching on this doctrine of glorification. He said, Therefore, let us stand fast. Let us not willfully throw away our prospects of glory and immortality. What? Relinquish resurrection, relinquish heaven, relinquish likeness to the risen Lord. Oh God, save us from such a terrible piece of apostasy. Save us from such immeasurable folly. Suffer us not to turn our backs in the day of battle, since that would be to turn our backs from the crown of life that fades not away. I told you about the sands of time are sinking. Samuel Rutherford was finally arrested many times, put in prison. Then he was released when the Puritans took over Parliament. And then the Puritans went out of power, Charles II came to power in England, and of course, they controlled Scotland. So they began ejecting pastors and putting pastors in jail again. And so that's when he's writing these letters to his flock. He's in jail. Finally, he is let out, and he can't return to his church, but he's dying on his deathbed, and he's still preaching. And they tell him, you have to show up before the authorities. You're going to be arrested again for preaching the gospel. So he wrote these dying words. He said, and it's reflected in the last line of the hymn. We don't sing all 19 stanzas, by the way. We only sing We only sing six. There's 19 stanzas. When they used to write hymns, they were long. There's 19 stanzas that kind of go through Rutherford's theology and life here. The last one speaks of his dying words. They've summoned me before them, but there I cannot come. My Lord says, come up hither. My Lord says, Welcome home. My King now at his white throne. My presence doth command. Where glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That's the kind of outlook we need to have. God is calling us to be glorified, and we ought to live for him and be comforted by this teaching now. Lord, we do pray that you would comfort us. We have these battles with sin every day, the pressures of the world, the flesh and the devil, but your scripture encourages us. We know that it's secure. That glory is is dwelling with the glorified Christ forever in His land, in His eternal new earth that is perfect. We long to live with Him. We long to serve Him with everything that we have. Help us to do that now, to get into the practice of it right now, to excel at it so that when we receive that final glorification, we can rejoice. And he will say, well done, my good and faithful slave. We pray that for every believer here today. In Jesus' name, amen.